everybody. Uh, if you are new here, my name is Isaac. I'm one of the pastors here. For the month of August, we do something unique. We have a, a month dedicated to apologetics. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, apologetics just comes from an old Greek word, apologia. It's, it's the idea of giving a defense of Christianity and its truth claims. Today is, is, is going to be awesome. It's, it's unique in that uh, we have Hank Hanegraaff here with us, and I'm going to uh, intro him in a little bit, but we're going to be doing pretty much a Q&A with Hank Hanegraaff for the entirety of, of the sermon time. Did somebody already clap to that? That was, uh, that was awesome. Um, so uh, somebody should just like not even do a Bible question, just like do a hard algebra question. Hey, Bible answer man, how about some trigonometry here? Um, Hank Hanegraaff uh, is the president and chairman of the board for the Christian Research Institute, CRI. You can find more about them, equip.org. He's written uh, over 20 books. Some of them have been incredible, highly influential to me. Um, he's been hosting the Bible Answer Man show for quite some time, has ministered to literally millions of people all around the world. So it's a, it's a pleasure and honor to have him here today. This is the way it's going to work. I'm going to invite him in a moment to come up, and then he's going to do a brief introduction. And then we have two stations with... Uh, microphones in the back at each corner. You'll be able to see them. They're stand-up microphones. And during this time, you can just get up and start forming a line at either of these two stations to ask any questions. We also have some, some questions that some of you submitted uh, online. You can either get up and try to ask those live, or if we have time, we'll, we'll get to those um, as well later. But that's, th that's the format. Um, I, I, I said a joke earlier. It's not a joke. I actually believe it. I'm going to put, I shouldn't say, never mind. I'll put too much pressure on. I was going to say, you do know there's, there, there are such things as dumb questions. Uh, you know, like in elementary school, they always tell the students, there's no such thing as a dumb question. I'm going, man, I've heard some dumb questions. <laughs> Don't let that intimidate you. Um, Hank, Hank is intimidating enough. Uh, um, so, yeah, without taking any more of his time, seriously, it's an honor and pleasure. Uh, it's been two years since you've been here. Hank Hanegraaff, thank you for, for being with us here. Uh. Thank you. My son, my daughter, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness or truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. 
so that your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. My son, daughter, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof for whom the Lord loves. He reproves, even as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding, for its profit is better than the profit of silver. It is better than the profit of fine gold. Nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways. All her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her fast. Tree of life. Think about the grand meta-narrative of Scripture. In the beginning, Adam and Eve fall into lives of perpetual sin, terminated by death. The rest of the Bible then becomes God's unfolding plan of redemption, culminating in a new heaven and a new earth. And you can picture it, as it were, from the perspective of the cross. The cross is the tree of life. And there you see the Prince of Life stretch one arm out and touch the Edenic Garden. And the other, the Eternal Garden. Remember what John said in the very last chapter of the Bible? He sees the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. That is what we look forward to. A time in which we experience ultimate union with God. But in the meantime, we can experience what Vladimir Lossky talked about when he said that the whole history of humanity following the fall is a history of shipwreck awaiting rescue. But the port of salvation is not the goal. It is for the shipwreck to continue on in a journey whose sole goal is union with God. Meaning, we were created for life, for fellowship in the Trinity. We were created for life with God. We were created for union with God. Now, that does not mean that we will become like God, except we are partakers, as Peter said, of the divine nature. 
not in the sense that we become ontologically or by nature what God is, but we can become by grace what God is by nature, and then have fellowship, the very fellowship that Adam and Eve experienced with God in the garden. So it's not just about praying a prayer. It's about continuing the journey. When you get saved from a shipwreck, you don't want to just be saved. You want to continue the journey, the sole goal of which, again, is union with God. We live in what might well be called an ABC moment. Anything but Christian. From the outside, we have the threat of the fastest growing religion, Islam. Internally, we're faced with illiberal liberalism. But there's another problem. It is not only Islam from without or encroaching illiberal liberalism from within. It is a church no longer committed to doing for the truth what Muslims and the culture are doing for a lie. You are the only antidote to this anything but Christian moment. And ultimately, you are the antidote through always being ready to give an answer, what Pastor Isaac talked about, to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and with respect. By being biblically literate, <clears throat> excuse me, by getting into the Word of God and getting the Word of God into you, but also by countering cults like Islam. I call Islam a cult because it is a cult of pagan Arabianism as well as Judaism and Christianity, all misunderstood and a dangerous elixir. That elixir we must be able to give an answer for. And that doesn't mean that you have to know everything there is to know about Islam. I just wrote a book called Muslim, What You Need to Know About the World's Fastest Growing Religion. It'll be out uh, October 10th. We'll be able to send copies out to people who register out there earlier because uh, we get them at CRI earlier than anybody else gets them. So, But that book is, uh, is a book that communicates what Islam really is, but the most important thing is not that. It is that you are familiar with what you believe and why you believe it. But in this clash of civilizations, do remember that it is not a battle we win by might or by power, but by His Spirit, by a power that is in us but not of us. You know, I have this microphone right now, and without this microphone, you probably could not hear me very well. The microphone eventually is going to run out of energy. 
but there's an energy that is not merely biological, it's zoetic. And that is the energy of God by which we can do that which is impossible in the flesh. And I say that as we transition into questions simply to say we live in a difficult time, but this is not a time to give up. This is a time in which we can know greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. When you look at the full armor of God, I'm always struck by the fact that the emphasis is on the power of God to protect rather than the power of Satan to pillage. Well, with that as prologue, uh, I would love for you to walk up to the microphones and ask you questions that are on your heart. Whatever question you have, be happy to uh, entertain at this time. Hank, uh, just to break, break the ice, because usually likes asking the first question, so that's why we had some submitted, and then everyone else can take time and form up at the back, but it transitions from what you were just talking about. Someone submitted on our website, I have heard the Christian faith claim the apostles are proof of Jesus' claims and resurrection because no one dies for a false religion, but Muslims do so all the time, so how can one say that the apostles could have died believing a false faith because Muslims do so all the time? Yeah, it is conceivable that someone will die for what they firmly believe to be true. It is inconceivable that millions will die for what they know to be a lie. When the sword is unfurled, when the guillotine begins to fall, you might well say, I was kidding. And yet what you see in Christianity is scared scattered disciples that encounter the resurrected Christ and suddenly everything changes. Now they see that Christ who was crucified is now alive again, the earnest of their resurrection. And so they counted not their lives, even unto death because they knew they too would rise immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. So ultimately, resurrection can rightly be called the capstone in the arch of Christianity. It took scared, scattered disciples and made them lions of the faith, no longer afraid of the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane, the fires of a thousand deaths, because they knew that they would rise immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. And so they died, many of them, in great faith and hope of resurrection, which is not an uncertain promise, but an absolute certainty, and we have seen the earnest thereof in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love talking about this, quite frankly, at this point. Uh, some of you may notice, last time I was here, I had hair. I don't have hair anymore because I'm going through chemotherapy. And as you stare mortality in the face, it, uh, it is a wonderful thing to know 
that this world has, it has its advantages, but there's a world that is to come that is far more great and grand, grand and glorious, and it is the new heaven and new earth wherein dwell righteousness. Yes. Question. I am an Eastern Orthodox Christian and have come here just to hear you, but I'm asking you because how does one share when there is so much of a difference and you get in a conversation with someone I've had and they see us or me, my children, not as Christian, or they have a pre, I, they see us and they have a lot of, I hate to say prejudice against maybe just the way our churches are decorated or how we do our worship services and such. I was wondering, do you have a short way of explanation of the Eastern versus the Western ideology or just how to introduce yeah. so people understand? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, you know, I will tell you, last year alone, I traveled to eight different countries. I started out the year speaking in the West Bank and uh, in Jerusalem. I ended up in Singapore at the end of the year. And one of the things that you gain through travel is to recognize that God has his people everywhere. He has his people in the Eastern Church, and he has his people in the Western Church. And though the traditions oftentimes are somewhat different, the ways in which we worship, eschatologies, ecclesiologies. There are differences there, but I think ultimately what we have to champion as Christians, and now more than ever, we must champion what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity, meaning in essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. We are united around essentials. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. A Muslim will say the deity of Jesus Christ is the unforgivable sin of shirk. We believe in the original sin, not an original slip. We believe in the canon. The Word of God is the infallible repository of redemptive revelation. We believe in a triune God, resurrection, incarnation, the fact that we are going to be new creations in Christ, the fact that Christ will appear a second time, and when he does, he will put all things to right. These are the essentials of the historic Christian faith. So there certainly are things that we can debate vigorously, but we don't have to divide over those things. Some of you might notice I have a, um, I have a little pin on my shirt. And this pin is actually representative of the 14th letter of the Arabic alphabet. Noon is how it's pronounced. And it represents what's going on, in essence, in the Middle East. For Muslims, this is a term of derision. For us, 
It is a term of love and adoration. Because this N, noon, it's N uh, if you transliterate it into the Roman, uh, this actually stands for Nazarene. And Christ is, of course, the Nazarene. So what happens in places like Iraq right now is you will find houses that have a big N on them. So either ISIS, before they were driven out of Mosul, uh, would put that N on a house and then that house would be free to be looted uh, by the Muslims because that was a house that represented someone who belonged to the Nazarene, someone who belonged to Jesus Christ. Well, for me, this has now become a symbol of solidarity with those Christians who are facing mass genocide. Have you ever thought about this? This is squarely in the blind spot of the West. We don't hear about it, even on conservative radio and television anymore. But there is a mass genocide going on of Christians in the Middle East. We think about the 20th century as being the bloodiest century in history. During that century, over 100 million, some say 200 million, died as a result of socialist experiences and experiments. Well, in the 21st century, we may eclipse what happened in the 20th century. Every single year, as we sit in our churches in the West, over 100,000 Christians are martyred. That's approximately 12 Christians every hour, every day of the year. So we are facing mass genocide against Christians, and oftentimes the West pays little attention to what's happening to Christians in the East because they have a different tradition. So what I would say at the end of the day in answer to your question, what's critical for us to recognize is that we are unified around the essentials. In essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, all things charity. So if someone looks at you askance or in a way that is not pleasing, just remember that we're all fallen. The fault line of sin runs directly through the center of the human heart. Thank you for that very good question. Yes. Yeah, I have a question about um, salvation in regards to uh, predestination and free will. You know, as a Christian, how, how do you wrap your mind around that and find balance and harmony in it? Yeah, you know, that's uh, <laughs> what I like about the question is not only the question, but the way you phrased it. Uh, particularly the last few words, how do you find balance and harmony in it? You know, I've been at this for many, many years, uh, over 30 years doing the Bible Answer Man broadcast, or approximately 30 years. And one of the most, I would say, fruitless debates I have encountered within the body of Christ is this very debate. 
And the reason I call it fruitless is I think that it leads to so much acrimony within the body of Christ. Now, when I say fruitless, I'm not saying it's unimportant, nor am I saying that I do not have strong feelings about it. I do. What I mean when I say fruitless is that if you think about this biblically, and the more you memorize the scriptures, the more acutely aware you become of this. On the one hand, we know scripture tells me that I choose my path, but it also tells me that God directs my steps. And in some sense, the older I get, the more I am willing to live in what I call the land of antinomy, the land of tension between those two. On the one hand, I recognize God's complete sovereign hand in the affairs of humanity. Going through my own cancer treatment, I have seen God's hand over and over again in very specific ways. And it is so comforting to me. And yet I know that the choices I make are choices of my free will. In other words, what I choose to do or preclude to do makes a difference and I will be held accountable before the throne of God one day for those choices. So again, while on the one hand, I find this to be a very important subject, a subject I've spent a tremendous amount of time on, I love the way you phrase the question. How can we deal with this in peace and harmony? I think the beginning is to simply be humble and say there are many things in the Christian faith that I can apprehend but not comprehend. For example, how can we comprehend that Christ is one person with two natures? How can we comprehend one person or one God revealed in three persons, more correctly put, eternally distinct? That's something we can apprehend, but we simply can't comprehend. It is beyond us. And if we could, our God would be too small. The easy religions are the made-up religions. And if I might digress here for just a moment, think Islam. Islam believes in a Unitarian God. We believe in a triune God. Well, Islam says that's kind of a monstrous God, isn't it? A three-headed monster, three gods, that's polytheism. But of course, we believe not in polytheism, we are fiercely monotheistic. We believe in one God. But how do you explain one God revealed in three persons eternally distinct? Well, we can say on the one hand, that Islam has a morally defective God. Why can we say that? Because absent the universe, prior to the universe, if I might use that term loosely, a Unitarian God would have no one to love and therefore would be morally defective because 
there would be no way to exercise the attribute of love or even to have the attribute of love. But think about the Trinitarian God. Prior to the time that God spoke in the universe, leapt into existence, God was always in loving relationships, the Father with the Son, the Son with the Spirit, the Spirit with the Father and the Son. And the beauty, as I said earlier, is we now can be brought into that fellowship, the very thing that we were created for. So maybe my answer to your question in some is that we can deal with this in a harmonious way by recognizing that this is a tension in Scripture, and therefore I think that we ought to be very humble in the way that we deal with this issue in our communication one with another. Hey, thank you for taking my question. Uh, I had a question regarding John 17.3. John? John 17.3. 173 yes yeah, because I'm I'm I come my, my wife's whole family is Jehovah Witnesses and I'm surrounded by them on a regular basis and when I present like um, you know the, the Trinity or anything like that they use this scripture to say hey, you know about God knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom they have sent and they say see there's a difference between Jesus Christ and the one true God which whom they call Jehovah so I was wondering, how can I reconcile that with them as I'm sharing my faith with them while I'm dealing with them on a regular basis? Well, it's wonderful that you are dealing with them on a, on, on a regular basis. Um, and this is the very thing that we need to do, is to, whenever God gives us an opportunity, uh, to use that opportunity, and now you have a familial opportunity to make a difference. And let me, uh, let, me, let me simply say that this is one of the things that I was alluding to in my prior answer. The fact that in the incarnation, Christ is one person with two natures, 100% human and 100% divine. Now, Jesus sometimes in his humanity speaks from the perspective of human beings. As such, Christ would not know certain things. Yet from the perspective of his divinity, he knows all things. So when you read through the scriptures, sometimes the scripture is emphasizing Christ as he speaks from the perspective of a human being. And sometimes as the divine God. Sometimes you see Christ being crucified and seemingly totally at the hands of corrupt, fallen human beings. And yet sometimes you get a glimpse of his divinity. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Suddenly the soldiers fall backwards. It is though it is as though they got a small glimpse of God. So the essence of the Christian faith, as I said with the Trinity, is not something we can fully comprehend, and this is something you have to share with your Jehovah's Witness friends. The incarnation, how is it possible that Christ can be one person with two natures? 
Well, it, it, it is not illogical, but it does supersede logic. There is a sense in which we can say that God became a clam would be an outrageous statement that made no sense whatsoever. But to say God became a man is not outrageous because within humanity, there are those attributes that we call communicable attributes, meaning they are attributes that find a reflection in our humanity. There are also, of course, incommunicable attributes. We are not ineffable. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipotent. So there are attributes in humanity that find a reflection in deity. And the Christian story is Christ comes down in incarnation, takes on flesh. Why? So that we might ascend the ladder of design ascent and become God. Not in the sense that a Mormon would say, but in the sense that we can be, as I mentioned earlier in the prologue to the questions, partakers of the divine nature. So we can never be what God is in the Godhead, but we can be partakers of the divine nature. And when we are, now we no longer live by might or by power, but rather by His Spirit. By the way, we have some phenomenal resources at the Christian Research Institute on witnessing to the witnesses. And uh, some of those resources might help you in uh, coloring out the rest of the, uh, uh, the picture. Thank you. Um. My small group just finished a study on uh, Nabil Karishi's book, uh, Seeking All of Finding Jesus. And based on what, I, I didn't know you had something on the Muslim faith, but based on that, um, can you tell uh, the congregation about how the Muslim faith, Sharia law, and um, uh, the and the Quran, how it's inconsistent and also incompatible with Christian faith. Sure. Yeah. Um, and th th this, of course, is a very important question uh, in, in my book, Muslim, What You Need to Know About the World's Fastest Growing Religion. I talk about being in uh, Iran uh, during the 33rd anniversary of the overthrow of the Shah of Iran. Uh, speaking at the University of Tehran and Alamut Tibetaba, the great sociology university there. So I'm in a Muslim theocracy. And one of the things that was interesting about that is uh, when I first got there the first night, I didn't dare leave my hotel room. I'd never been in a Muslim theocracy before. The next morning, my interpreter, uh, a lady named Fatima, said to me, how was your evening? I said, well, I stayed in my room. And she said to me, why? I said, well, I was a little intimidated. And she said, you can walk the streets of Tehran in the middle of the night and you will be completely safe. And for the next six nights, I did that. Because of the jet lag and the time change, I walked the streets of Tehran. I think it's a city of about 12 million people. In the middle of the night, and I was greeted with nothing but acts of kindness. 
So I start my book out by saying that there are millions and millions of peace-loving Muslims. However, Islam is anything but tolerant and peaceful. 1,400 years of history ought to have demonstrated to us that Islam does not advance by the spirit, but rather by the sword. And so what I want to communicate and have communicated in this book, using the acronym Muslim, is the difference between the Christ of Christianity and Muhammad. The legacy of Muhammad is a legacy of terror. Now, Muhammad married a young girl named Aisha when she was only six. He consummated the marriage when she was nine. And probably what we would call the greatest of his military exploits, and there were over 80 of them, he killed the leader of the Kabar Jews, had his wife beautified that night, and forced on her his bed. He had a legacy of brutality. And when you compare Muhammad and Christ, the distance is an unbridgeable chasm. The U in my acronym reminds, and hopefully will remind all of you, of unreliable revelations. We have them in, well, in all kinds of stripes. We certainly have them with the Mormons, we have them with the Jehovah's Witnesses, but we also have them with the Muslims. The Quran, called the most noble holy Quran, is fraught with faulty ethics. Just one example. A man can beat his wife. A man can marry more than, uh, more than one woman. He can marry up to four women. And Muhammad could marry any woman his heart desired. He got a special revelation. But it's not only replete with faulty ethics, but factual errors. For example, the Quran denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it denies the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the Quran motivates those who are Muslim to eradicate the people of the book. Now, some people say, well, I've read a lot of peaceful surahs in the Quran or ayahs, verses in the Quran. But the reality is there are two Qurans. There's the Meccan Quran and there's the Medinan Quran. The Meccan Quran are, are ayahs or surahs that come out of Mecca when Muhammad was a struggling itinerant preacher trying to start a new religion. But when he fled Mecca under great duress and went to Yatrib or Medina, 
He became a ruthless warlord. And that's where you have the brutal verses of the Quran. But at any rate, unreliable revelation. Um, the S stands for Sharia. Maybe uh, because of time, I can't go through a lot of detail, but let me simply say this. In Islam, there's a big difference from what we believe in Christianity. In Christianity, we believe in the separation of church and state. Remember, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In Islam, they believe Sharia is state and state is Sharia. And we are now faced not only with terrorism, but we are faced with a demographic time bomb. You think about the EU countries who are self-aborting. The death rate exceeds the birth rate and filling the vacuum are millions and millions of polygamous Muslims. And a culture that ultimately becomes Muslim demographically will become Muslim politically as well. It's just a matter of time. So the whole idea of Sharia is something we ought to have on our wavelength because we ought to look at what Sharia means for women, what Sharia means for war, and what Sharia has historically meant for Western civilization. Never forget, September 11, 1683, Johann Sobieski, September 11, ring a bell? September 11, 1683, Johann Sobieski, the Polish king, stopped the Muslim Turks at the gates of Vienna. Had that not happened, Europe would already be Eurabia. The L stands for the Levant. This is the crossroads of world history, the connector of three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And uh, it is the place in which Muslims believe that all religions are going to be harmonized under Muhammad and under Islam. Christianity, Judaism, all religions will be harmonized under Muhammad and Islam. And so the sun glinting uh, from the gold-bedecked dome of the Dome of the Rock, which is now the centerpiece uh, in, in the Middle East, the epicenter of the Middle East being Jerusalem, or the epicenter of the Levant being Jerusalem, uh, lets us know that in Islam, Muhammad is the culmination of the prophets, a prophet far greater than Jesus Christ, and the culmination of the religions. In other words, Judaism and Christianity ultimately find their full bearing in Islam. Well, not much more I can say about that at this point, but let me also mention the Islamic State. When we talk about the Islamic State, I'm not just talking about ISIS or ISIL. I'm talking about an end-time caliphate that seeks to overthrow the world and bring everything into the house of Islam. And uh, we think about ISIS, but you think about our best friends and allies in Saudi Arabia. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars 
exporting a virulent form of Islam to the West, Wahhabism. And uh, the damage that they're doing, uh, we, we don't talk about a whole lot. Why? Because we're drug addicts and they're the pushers. We are addicted to their oil and the addicts never talk too much about their pushers. The last letter in the acronym, uh, major Muslim misapprehensions. You want to know how we know a stick is crooked? Well, you have to lay a straight stick next to it. So in that section, I lay the straight stick of scripture next to the crooked stick of Islam so that you can see its crookedness by comparison, contrast being the mother of uh, uh, comparison, where we, we, um, we, we, we see the difference by contrast. So contrast becomes the mother of clarity in that process. Well, I'm out of time. I have to end exactly at 9.55 so I can get to the other campus. I'm going to be back here uh, for the third service and uh, answering questions, shaking hands. So if some of you want to come back for that, love to see you. Thank you for your attention. Sorry I couldn't get to any more questions. So hopefully we'll have a chance uh, later on in the day. Wasn't that awesome? Yeah, let's give him one more round of applause because I need to put my guitar on. <laughs>